Thanks, Andrew, and everybody else who's been uh, helping us with the worship so far. Good congregation for a Glasgow fair. Uh, it's expected a bit half empty this morning, but uh, great to be here as well, and thank you for the warm welcome. I feel as though I'm making more and more friends every time I come here, so uh, let's hope that after the sermon I've still got a few friends. You just never know what's going to come out from the Word of God. I love preaching. And I'm getting lots of opportunities to preach. I was in Straven Evangelical last Sunday, and I'm in Westwood uh, next Sunday. And when I came back from Straven, I thought, I'll have a little look online and see who was preaching in Hamilton. It was Michael Healy, and I got watching, and I got drawn into the sermon, and I thought, uh, it was really engaging. And I thought, actually, what I'm planning to preach on, Love is Kind, as you can see on the screen there, follows on quite nicely from what Michael was preaching on last Sunday, and also follows on very well from uh, what Naomi was sharing with us in The Fruit of the Spirit. For one of those is, of course, kindness. Love is kind. But how does this play out in churches? Well, there's a lot of it going around. But sometimes we fall short of all that God would have us do in terms of expressing that kindness. You'll probably be familiar with the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. And uh, judging by the, these first three chapters and the message to the seven churches in Asia, which I think we've got a little illustration of, have we? Yes, we do. Um, it seems that each of these churches that the Lord has a message for, if you're familiar with Revelation chapter 1 to 3, there are messages that go out to the churches from the Lord himself. And it's very interesting to, re to see how these churches undoubtedly began really, really well, had developed a culture of their own. And uh, five of these churches, the Lord's word coming to five of these churches, has a lot to praise them about but a few little messages in there that things that actually you should really deal with this and then that, and there are a few faults that I find with the church. Two of the churches come out, absolutely five-star churches, no criticism at all, and two of them, the Lord hasn't got anything good to say about them at all, which is interesting in the way that they develop. And it's true of churches today, Every church seems to have a culture of its own. It develops and people become inculturated by the culture of the church, the ways of being of the church, as it were, uh, the distinctives of the church. And so whichever church you go to, you will find something that is distinctive about that church, particularly in its culture, which is perhaps uh, dominant or outstanding, certainly become very aware of. I wonder, as we look at these, these uh, churches in the, the book of Revelation, um, what the Lord might have said if there was an eighth church, Hamilton Baptist Church, in the book of Revelation. What would the Lord's message be for Hamilton Baptist Church? Uh, I think there'd be a lot of praise, but perhaps there would be a few things that the Lord would draw our attention to that perhaps he would maybe find fault with and encourage us to address 
that the church might be excellent in all of its ways. What's clear from these chapters in the book of Revelation is that the Lord knows his church and he does not withhold his word from it. The Lord knows his church and he doesn't withhold his word from it. So we have confidence that through the preaching of the word of God, God's word will come to the church. Uh, God will not hold back from revealing something to the church that he wants to speak to the church about in the same way as he did in the book of Revelation. Let's have a little look at Revelation chapter 2, verses 2 to 4. Because uh, there's a particular message to the church of Ephesus, which I think every church can learn something about. Revelation 2, verse 2, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people And you have tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered, and have endured hardships for my name, and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. That was a bit of an ouch moment. You think, you get, we're really going on to the five star, and oh, you read the last line and you think, there's something here that we, maybe we could address in the church at Ephesus. The Lord commends them for many things. Hardworking, persevering, intolerant of injustice, sound in doctrine, guardians of the truth, enduring of hardship, but they have forsaken their first love. A love that no doubt motivated these believers to serve God altruistically. And uh, a love which, which, um, which they've, they've, they've moved away from. Paul's letter to the Corinthians tells us that without love, we're nothing. We might have many gifts and many qualities, but we need love. Without love, hard work can degenerate into having a resentment of people who are we deem as uncommitted or lazy or whatever, like the elder brother and the prodigal son. It's actually the parable of the prodigal sons because both of them stepped away from the father. They moved away from the father's heart. And the critical older brother is resentful when his brother is given so much grace. Difficult to know ourselves. What does Paul write about concerning the place of love in the church? Well, we're going to move to another reading now, which is, and you wouldn't be surprised, we're going to go to 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 to 13, where uh, this is a wonderful passage here. I'll show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and knowledge, if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, 
Again, nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. I've, uh, on the next slide here, I've uh, told this little story in a few churches now because it's one that gets me every time I, I hear about it. A little girl knelt by her bedside one evening and her prayers were overheard. Lord, make the bad people good. And Lord, make the good people kind. Children have got amazing insight, more than we actually give them credit for. If we have the ability to recall the early years of childhood, we might be able to remember those moments when we could see what was going on in the adult world behind the facade of the faces. And this story, whether it is, I could well believe it is a true story, that a little girl prayed this prayer one day. It does illustrate to us that sometimes the children can see what us as grown-ups don't see necessarily or even admit to ourselves. God's word tells us that love is kind. And this is the particular focus of our reflection this morning. If I were to ask you who it is that you in your life have received kindness from, the go-to person in your life when you've got it wrong, when you've made an absolute fool of yourself, that you wouldn't trust that information to anyone else except that person because even when you've got it wrong, you experience that kindness from them. Who would that person be? Grandparents, in particular, are very good at this. Well, they can be, anyway. They don't have the same responsibilities as parents. We're grandparents, too. Uh, they come and they go. And but they, they come to us sometimes, and we're just, they're just so wonderful to have around. I was watching the children in front of me, and I thought, what a wonderful age you've got there. For, uh, and they're very demanding at times, but wonderful age uh, but grandparents when they they just love to see the grandchildren when they come round and that affection is reciprocated um, and I will 
what people think of grandparents. Sadly, mine died when I was quite young. But uh, people who show true kindness, but it can be other people too. Could it be possible that somebody is thinking of you as that person, as the go-to person? Wouldn't that be wonderful? If someone was thinking of you, your name came to mind as the someone they could be thinking of. Because I reckon that the best measure of Christian character qualities, the character quality of a Christian, the best measure is undoubtedly how much a person loves and how that love is expressed in kindness towards others. There have to be many others in the top ten, but love surely must be at the top. And it shouldn't surprise us because to love is the greatest commandment of all. Jesus reminded us of that. The greatest commandments, to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength, to love our neighbour as ourselves and to love one another, he said, as I have loved you. Would you like to be that kind of person that others would thank God for? The go-to person who shows kindness to them. Or, in addition, contribute well to the culture of your church so that kindness becomes its outstanding quality. A kindness expressed to people who come through the doors. A kindness expressed to one another, even when we get things wrong. A love that flows, a warmth and an affection. Because very sadly, churches can at times become unsafe environments. We've got another slide there. Danger, keep out. <laughs> Quite like that one. I can think of times when it happened to me as a young Christian, when someone said something to me as a young Christian. Uh, it was actually a pastor of the church who said something to me publicly in a meeting when I had unintentionally got something wrong that didn't deserve a public rebuke. And as a young, sensitive Christian, I left that meeting early, not in rage, but in sorrow. And I can still remember on the floor beneath me, it was a lino-tiled floor. I left two pools of water from the tears that ran down my face. I was so deeply hurt that day. Popped on my bike, cycled home, and thought about it. Thought... Why am I going to this church? And I went back because I decided I, would, I was following Jesus. And if somebody had said something that had hurt me, I wasn't going to let that stop me from following Jesus. I had to work that through as a young Christian. But if I were to really know myself as I like to, and sometimes I get glimpses of it, I would have to admit that unintentionally I have probably hurt more than a few people through 50 years of my Christian life. 
even as a pastor. Unintentionally, I may have hurt people. And, that, and there is evidence that I have done so. I say it's unintentional, but I get it wrong. Why do I get it wrong? Why do we get it wrong? Because we're flawed. Because we're not perfect. No matter how much we aspire to love God and to love others and show kindness, we bring our own baggage with us to the church. Just as the church in Ephesus was a church that slowly drifted away from its initial outstanding qualities that it was characterized with at first and abandoned or uh, forsook the love that they had at first. It was noticeable. It was missing. And in a sense, it was the seeds of death for the church. I've been to Ephesus. There isn't any church. And there is more, there's more than one reason for that. With the silting up of the harbour and the whole topographical changes of the area. But earlier on from that, did they heed the message of the Lord? We can contribute to the, a, a church being outstanding in its expressions of love, in particular with reference to kindness to one another. If we can excel in that, it would be a wonderful thing. It's a challenge for us. Inevitably, we've all got baggage. We, and if we can be aware of where we fail, if we're hot-tempered, grumpy, if there are pain that we haven't worked through that starts to leak out in our relationships with one another. Or if we're aware that somebody else is like that, can we be kind towards them? Because we're all carrying it somewhere. And leaders in churches have a great responsibility because I think us, people who lead in churches, set the bar. But not aware of how much we are an example to others. It's kind of, well, if they can do it, I can do it. And if they don't do it, well, I don't need to do it either. How best can we contribute to a church excelling as one that is characterized by love and kindness? Well, as Naomi was reminding us earlier on, by remaining in fellowship with the Holy Spirit. For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, Peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. All one fruit described with a sevenfold description from Galatians 5, 22 to 23. Are not the, the two big questions that we're going to be asked on the day of judgment these? What did you do with Jesus' offer of salvation. What did you do for Jesus' offer of forgiveness through his death on the cross for you? When I was preparing this address, and this doesn't often happen, but when I was preparing this address, I sensed that, and I may be right in this, but I'm putting it out there anyway to people who are watching online or in this congregation that there's someone who is ready to receive God's forgiveness today was ready to, in hearing this message of forgiveness that comes through the cross of Christ, wants to become a Christian today. It's pretty easier in your own home to do that, to pray a little prayer of, 
of uh, asking Jesus to save you, to, to forgive you. You want to become a Christian. Uh, it's perhaps a little less easy in a, in a public setting like this. But if anyone here decides to become a Christian today, I'm asking you as a congregation to be as kind as you can and as warm and as prayerful and as accepting and as welcoming to whoever that person who, who is who seeks to belong to Christ and to the church here. Some people have got the idea, well, when I reach the judgment seat of Christ, I'll just, I'll just plead my own case. Bad idea. Because we can never justify ourselves before God. We can try. But God knows us better than we know ourselves. There is only one who can justify us, and that is Christ. Because what Christ has done is said, but in the cross, the perfect Son of God died in our place. God is a God of love, yes, but he's also a God of justice. That's the dilemma. How does a God who loves us accept us without there being justice? A penalty that is paid by us in order to, for us to be forgiven. It's not a, a wishy-washy forgiveness with God. There's a whole matter of justice here, of just, just requirements of breaking a law. A little bit like if someone breaks uh, a law, whether it's a speed limit or whatever it, it is, and is caught, there is a penalty to pay in order to make things right. A police officer can't just say, oh, I forgive you. Well, I suppose they could. But then they wouldn't be carrying out their duties correctly. They want to satisfy the requirements of the law. A penalty to be paid. And we have a penalty to pay when we appear before the judgment seat of Christ for all the sins that we have committed, for all the wrong that we have done, and all the right that we didn't do that we should have done. Guilty! We are. But Christ this is the wonder of the gospel, the perfect son of God who was sinless, who alone could offer his life as a sacrifice on our behalf, as our representative and our substitute in his death upon the cross. He dies in our place and death cannot hold him and he rises from the dead. He ascends into heaven and he offers forgiveness to all who put their trust in him, so that when we appear before the judgment seat of Christ, and the question is, what did you do with Jesus? I put my trust in him, for he has taken all my guilt and he has satisfied God's righteous wrath against my sin, and it has been forgiven. There is, it's not a matter of, if Jesus died for all the sins of the world, and we put our faith in him, we don't have to die for our own sins as well. The punishment, uh, the penalty has been paid by Christ. And you, if you are wanted to become a Christian today, it's a simple matter of putting your trust in him and praying a prayer and asking his forgiveness. And I'm asking you, if you're in this congregation, to be bold enough to speak to me afterwards or to speak to someone you trust who is a, uh, a sound Christian afterwards, say, today, will you pray with me in a quiet corner somewhere and help me to cross the line 
so that when I walk out of this building, I know that I am a Christian too. I put it to you. That's the gospel. The other question, of course, is up there on the screen. In addition to what did you do with Jesus, how much did you love? Matthew 25 illustrates this to us, where on the judgment we read, the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. It's all about uh, visiting, uh, feeding someone that were hungry, and it's all, it's all about um, the way in which our Christian profession is played out in our actions showing kindness towards others and love. God's love surpasses all loves. It's a love that gave his one and only son to bring us to himself. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The original word in the Greek is egapesin, which is translated compassion. It's not a, a, a kind of a platonic, theoretical uh, concept of love. It's something that's felt here. It's compassionate. And of all the descriptions of love in 1 Corinthians 13, that one that stands out to me is love is Kind. The original word is krestos, meaning to relate to others with benevolent mildness. Love can be thought of a, as, a, as a concept. Kindness earths love in all our human relationships. As Christians, including myself, we are subject to the danger of becoming pharisaical in spirit. Our zeal for holiness and truth and righteousness can lead to us becoming critical, judgmental, harsh and cold at times. If you've ever looked online at some of the ways in which prominent Christians write about other Christians who have a different interpretation, other evangelicals, having a different interpretation of Scripture to their own that is legitimate. I'm not talking about denying the deity of Christ or anything like, like that. I'm talking about where Scriptures by evangelicals are interpreted in different ways. Can they not add a little bit of kindness to the way? They're like worse than some of the politicians in the expression of criticism for one another. It's not a good witness. Where is the compassion that Christ calls for even when we get things wrong? At least in our eyes. When, people, when other people get things wrong. There are several Greek words that are used for love. In, uh, one is eros, the desire between the sexes. There is storge, the natural affection of a parent for a child. We can distinguish those two very clearly. 
There is philia, the friendship of kindred spirits, your best mate. It's different to a love that a parent would have for a child or a partner. And there's agape. The self-giving love of God revealed in Jesus Christ that is prepared to go through pain and sacrifice to save someone else because of the divine love felt for the other. It's unique. And it's demonstrated in the suffering servant, our Lord Jesus Christ. His was a serving love and his was a suffering love. Philippians chapter 2 reminds us, he took the form of a servant and humbled himself even unto death on a cross. How can we excel in agape love? In loving God and in loving others. Agape love is a counting love. It's illustrated by the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. The more they gave away, the the more they had. And it's like that with love. When love is shared, it's like the lighting of a candle. The flame doesn't go out, it just spreads. And love is contagious. Kindness is contagious in the same way. Wonderful characteristic if it becomes the outstanding distinctive of a body of believers in the church. Something to invest in. Defies the mathematical norms because it multiplies by division. And when love is subtracted from any of the spiritual gifts, then the person with those spiritual gifts becomes a great big zero. If I do not have love, Paul says, I'm nothing. Love is kind. It's a caring love. As we reflect on the characteristics of love, if we were to substitute for the word love in 1 Corinthians 13, the word Jesus, like Jesus is patient, Jesus is kind, Jesus is without envy. That's quite interesting, reading it in that way. But if we were to put our own name in there as well, how true would it be of you? Just imagine that your name is in there. Whether it's Jenny or John or Nigel or Liz or whoever it is, pop your name in there. Is patient, suffering an injury without retaliating. Kind, generous and gentle in attitude to others from the heart, without envy. Celebrating the successes and achievements of others when you were not preferred and they were preferred rather than you. It's not proud, not needing to because of our security in God, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not easily angered, keeps no record of wrongs. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. How do we measure up? 
And before God, how does the church measure up? Is there anything that God wants to say to us? I'm not taking away from the qualities of the church. I feel it's right to ask the question of God, is there something in this for us to hear? Is there some shaping more into the character of Christ? Is there room for us to be more like Jesus? What is your attitude towards people whose ways, whose ways of being, beliefs and values you don't agree with? How do you speak to them? How do you treat them? What do you say about them behind their backs? What do you have to say to other Christians in the church who fail to live up to the standards that you might expect of them? Are you dismissive, critical, and judgmental of them, or do you shun them or reject them? Or do you show them kindness and pray with compassion for them that they may be enabled to grow in grace? I ask the question. I hope you come up five stars on that. But if you don't, I'm sure the Spirit of God will, will reveal it. Kindness in the Bible is like that of the Samaritan caring for the robber who was injured at the side of the road, robbed, stripped. It's shown by Jesus as he reaches out and touches people suffering from leprosy. Or when he shares a meal with a notorious sinner or speaks to a woman of disrepute by a well in the desert. And in his final prayers, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Jesus saves his harsh rebukes for religious leaders who withhold compassion from others. Agape, agape love is continuing love. It says love never fails. In other words, it outlasts everything else. Peter's challenged by the question, do you love me? Question of Jesus, do you love me? And it's the greatest need in the church of Ephesus. It's greater than, in 1 Corinthians 13, love is greater than faith and hope. Why? Are they not all equals, faith and hope and love? No. Because love is the one thing that will remain in eternity when faith has been rewarded and hope has been fulfilled. Won't need faith or hope any longer. When perfection or totality or completeness comes, no need for gifts or knowledge or faith, for we shall see. No need for hope. The one thing that remains is love. And love and the lasting fruits of our Christian service that have been motivated by it. Love never fails is translated sometimes, love never gives up. There's a word here, piptai, in the Greek, for fail, and it nearly always is translated falls. When I think about that, love never falls, never falls. It's like somebody bringing a gift to somebody else, and they drop it. They never drop it. It's always delivered. 
and always received. It never fails. Always reaches the other. Follow the way of love is the final slide there. Follow the way of love. 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 1. That's what we're encouraged to do. I'm going to lead in a prayer just in case somebody is watching on the screen here and I won't have an opportunity to pray with them. Father God, as we come to you having reflected in your word today, we pray together for any particular person who is engaged with this address who wants to become a Christian today. And our prayer, along with them, as we invite them to join us with these words, is this. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me. I put my trust in you today and ask for your forgiveness. I ask that today I will cross the line from being someone who was not a Christian to someone who can now say I am a Christian. And help me to be a follower of you and to become more like you in my life as I go on from here. Amen.